0: Father, as we consider this uh, book of Revelation, we just ask that you would reveal, that you would clarify something of great importance to us about who you are. Amen. Well, you know, everyone is not a fan of the book of Revelation and even some very well-known individuals. For example, Martin Luther. This is what he said about the book of Revelation. My spirit cannot accommodate itself to this book. For me, this is reason enough not to think highly of it. Christ is neither taught nor known in it. Now, later on, he changed his tune somewhat, you know, he used the book of Revelation, but as been noted by some, uh, he used it mainly as a hammer against the Catholic church. And if some of you were um, here who we went through Bible translation, you might remember the very toxic footnotes that uh, used to occur prior to the King James Bible, where this is clearly the Pope and uh, in the footnotes. Okay, But uh, he wasn't a big fan of Revelation. And perhaps here's one reason. How do we take the book of Revelation? Do we take it in a very literal sense? Well, for all the wonderful things that came out of the Reformation, one of the, if we want to call it perhaps a negative thing, is that a literal understanding of everything in Scripture was very much uh, emphasized. And it's hard to read the book of Revelation if you take everything Literally. We have horses, olive trees, trumpets, hailstones, locusts, three frogs, lots of sanctuary symbolism. We have dragons and beasts and a sharp sickle and bowls of God's anger, a prostitute, harps. We take all this literally. Or are there symbols and metaphors? In heaven, you like to play the piano, some other instrument? Uh, Too bad, you only get a harp in heaven. how, how, How far do we take some of these things? Um... Well, the whole Bible is the language, the alphabet, for understanding the book of Revelation. And we cannot take this book in isolation. Just as an example, the end of the book. I saw heaven standing open, there was a white horse, and its rider is named Faithful and True. With integrity he judges and wages war. His eyes are flames of fire, literal. On his head are many crowns. that has a significant meaning. He has a name written on him, but only he knows what it is. Significant meaning there. He wears clothes dipped in blood. When Jesus comes back, will he really look as if his clothes have been dipped in blood? And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven, wearing pure white linen, follow him on white horses. Is your picture of the second coming, the angels coming back on white horses. A sharp sword comes out of his mouth to defeat the nation's. Will he really come back with a literal sword out of his mouth? He will rule them with an iron scepter and tread the winepress of the fierce anger of God Almighty. Should we use the definition of God's anger or wrath in the whole Bible to uh, come to a verse like this? On his clothes and his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I saw an angel standing on the sun, a real angel standing on the real sun, He cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying overhead. Come, gather for the great banquet of God. Eat the flesh of kings, generals, warriors, horses, and their riders. Will that literally happen? And all free people and slaves, both important or insignificant people. I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. Do we imagine tanks and planes flying out to meet them? What does this mean? The beast and the false prophet who had done miracles for the beast were captured. And we don't have time to explain all this, but the beast and the false prophet, as I understand it, is a false system. How do you capture a false system? By these miracles, the false prophet had deceived those who had the brand of the beast and worshiped its statue, a real statue. Both of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. How do you throw a false system and belief into a lake of fire. The rider on the horse killed the rest with the sword that came out of his mouth. So two options, burned up or killed by a sword. And the birds gorged themselves on the flesh of those who had been killed. The imagery is violent, but this is all directly out of the rest of the Bible. We have to use the rest of the Bible to understand this. These are symbols, metaphors that cry out for meaning, explanation. Just a few other famous people who despised this book. D.H. Lawrence, a hideous version of Christianity, a repulsive work. Harold Bloom, here's a well-known individual. Resentment and not love is the teaching of the revelation of St. John the Divine. Revelation is a book without wisdom, goodness, kindness, or affection of any kind. C.H. Dodd, we are bound to judge that in its connect- the conception of the character of God and his attitude to man, the book falls below the level, not only of the teaching of Jesus, but of the best parts of the Old Testament. So we frequently talk about the God of the Old Testament. Uh, what about the God of the book of Revelation? And so lots of people are very challenged by the violence that is described in this book. Okay, here's another argument. Richard Balcom who has written a a wonderful book on uh, Revelation. And he described it this way, quite different. The Apocalypse of John is a work of immense learning, astonishingly meticulous literary artistry, remarkable creative imagination, radical political critique and profound theology. Okay, so which is it? Okay, I would agree with this latter interpretation here, but it depends on how we're reading and how we're understanding the book of Revelation. And I think the key for me, the key for all understanding is, are we centered on the person of Jesus Christ as the perfect reflection of who God is? Jesus dying on Calvary, that is the heart and center for understanding every other truth of importance. And we have to come with this picture of God to the book of Revelation. doesn't work any other way. And if some of you, uh, boy, here we are trying to cram a little bit of Revelation into a brief Bible study, but if some of you are interested, Sigve Tonstad, his whole doctoral dissertation was on the book of Revelation, and look at the title he chose, Saving God's Reputation. Now that's, uh, I think, quite significant, and I think the book of Revelation really is about the vindication of God's character. He actually has a class that's uh, just started meeting in an A-level amphitheater, 10 in the morning on Saturday, and it's just, he's going through the book of Revelation. It's it's very, very good, but uh, let's just see how it starts out. The first words, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not this is a mystification. This is something that no one can understand. No, this is a revelation. This is to reveal. This is to clarify something to us. Christ made these things known to his servant John by sending his angel to him. And John is told all that he has seen. This is his report concerning the message from God. And and this phrase is used five times in the book of Revelation. The truth revealed By Jesus Christ. That's the basis of Sigby's book, Saving God's Reputation. What truth did Jesus reveal? You've seen me, you've seen the Father. Father and I are one. John 17, my mission was to reveal God's character. And I think, again, that is the heart and center of the book of Revelation. Well, here's an overview, just uh, in terms of the structure of the book. There's a prologue, seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of God's wrath, an epilogue, and so it's interesting. We have these sevens, churches, seals, trumpets, bowls, and in between, an incredible section, the great controversy, first described um, in heaven and then on earth. And I really think that the structure of the book revolves around this, a great controversy over the character of God that began in God's very presence and has spilled over to planet earth. And then we have these incredible things surrounding it which clarify the issues in the great controversy. Now let's come back to this phrase. It's so critically important, it runs all the way through the book. We just read in Revelation 1-2. This is the report concerning the message from God and the truth revealed by Jesus Christ. Revelation 12, the dragon was furious with the woman and went off to fight against the rest of her descendants. Hey, what do we know about these people? All those who obey God's commandments all law is to love and are faithful to the truth revealed by Jesus. Jesus came to reveal the character of God. These people are faithful to that truth. Revelation 19, I am a servant together with you. This is an angel talking and with other believers. What do we know about the believers? All those who hold to the truth that Jesus revealed. Okay, a loving God, a God who is just like Jesus in character. Worship God for the truth that Jesus revealed is what inspires the prophet. Okay, and then the last time in Revelation 20, I also saw the souls of those who'd been executed because they had proclaimed the truth that Jesus revealed and the word of God. Okay, this is the core of the book, the truth that Jesus revealed. And this is what the people who are on God's side are passionate about, that is, um, the basis of Syngaphy's book, and he would come to this conclusion. What do you think about this? The message of revelation is best represented as a message of healing and not as a message of destruction. Now, remember what we just read about this, uh, this whole description, it sounds very violent. How could he come to such a conclusion that's about a message of healing, not a message of destruction? I think he's right on. We just go through the overview of the book. And every single section, the churches, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls of God's wrath, and the end of the book, they all end in healing and restoration. Let's give an example here from the very end. Uh, In fact, let me just make a point here. Maybe a flower is a good representation. Um, I said that the book of Revelation needs to be understood in the whole rest of the Bible, but the book of Revelation also needs to be understood in the context of the book of Revelation. What I mean by that is everything in Revelation is tied with something else in Revelation. It's so repetitive. So if one little leaf here of a flower represents, here's a a certain verse or message that comes out in Revelation, you will find that somewhere else. We have to read the book of Revelation, reread the book of Revelation, reread the book of Revelation, and all of these things begin to come together. So we understand it in the context of the book of Revelation and in the other 65 books of the Bible. So here's the end of the book. And tell me, does this sound like a message of healing and restoration? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth disappeared and the sea vanished. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared and ready like a bride, dressed to meet her husband. I heard a loud voice speaking from the throne. Now God's home is with people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and he will be their God. He will wipe away all tears from their eyes. This is repeated um, in a different place in Revelation. He'll wipe all tears from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more grief or crying or pain. The old things have disappeared. And a few verses later... The angel also showed me the river of the water of life, sparkling like crystal and coming from the throne of God and of the lamb and flowing down the middle of the city street. On each side of the river was a tree of life, which bears fruit 12 times a year, once each month, and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. This is directly out of Ezekiel. Everything is from some portion of the Old Testament. Nothing that is under God's curse will be found in the city, the throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will worship him. And this is incredible. They will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads. What if we said his name? It is character. Character of Christ will be written inside, in their foreheads. There will be no more night and they will not need lamps or sunlight because the Lord God will be their light and they will rule as kings forever and ever. That's a message of healing and restoration. And the whole book can be seen in that light. Revelation contrasts very much from the opening of the Bible. Opening of the Bible, of course, the fall of Adam and Eve. And this horrible verse here, where in the east of the garden, God put living creatures and a flaming sword which turned in all directions. This was to keep anyone from coming near the tree that gives life. So access is lost. In the beginning of the Bible and the end of the Bible, access to the tree of life regained. To those who win the victory, I will give the right to eat the fruit of the tree of life that grows in the garden of God. Saddest verse in the Bible, well, maybe one of the two saddest verses in the Bible, is God going for a walk in the garden. And the response of Adam is I heard you in the garden and I was afraid and hid from you because I was naked. Just imagine the person on this earth you love the most. Okay, you walk into the room and that person is terrified of you. I mean, how would that make you feel? Uh, I think, um, I just imagine walking into the room and my kids are terrified of me. I mean, I can't imagine how, how God felt going for a walk in the garden and here are Adam and Eve shaking in the bushes. They're afraid. Okay, we get an exact opposite picture here in Revelation. They will see his face looking at him, not afraid and his name will be written on their foreheads. So we contrast back and forth from the entrance of sin and what happened to the resolution of the sin problem. Okay, so I wanna read this section here after the seven churches and coming into the seven seals because I really think this is uh, quite spectacular. First, we get an incredible description, God in all his glory. At this point, I had another vision and saw an open door in heaven. And the voice that sounded like a trumpet, which I had heard speaking to me before said, come up here and I will show you what must happen after this. At once the spirit took control of me. There in heaven was a throne with someone sitting on it. His face gleamed like such precious stones as Jasper, carnelian, and all around the throne there was a rainbow, the color of an emerald. In a circle around the throne were 24 other thrones on which were seated 24 elders dressed in white and wearing crowns of gold. We could stop at each point here, but I wanna get the big picture from this passage. From the throne came flashes of lightnings, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lighted torches were burning, which are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Surrounding the throne on each of its sides were four living creatures. And here we have something straight out of Ezekiel covered with eyes in front and behind. The first one looked like a lion, the second like a bull, the third had a face like a human, the fourth looked like an eagle in flight. Each one of the four living creatures had six wings and they were covered with eyes inside and out. Day and night, they never stopped singing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. And if we had time, I think I could make a very good case that this individual is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Surrounded in all of this glory and everyone pronouncing holy, holy, holy. The four living creatures sing songs of glory and honor and thanks to the one who sits on the throne who lives forever and ever. When they do so, the 24 elders fall down before the one who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They throw their crowns down in front of the throne and say, our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory, honor, power for you created all things who created all things. John 1, that was the son of God. And by your will, they were given existence and life. But notice here, you are worthy. Okay, this individual is worthy, but notice what happens here as we come into the very next uh, chapter. I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne, the one we just read about. It was covered with writing on both sides and was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel who announced in a loud voice, and does this sound like a silly question after what we just read, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scrolls? And we just had this description of God in all of his glory. You are worthy. You're holy. And an angel is asking, who is worthy? And God holds the scroll. And the question is asked, who is worthy? Um, What does that mean? And we read on. It's surprising if you read this for the first time. But there was no one in heaven or on earth or in the world below who could open the scroll and look inside. I mean, is God not worthy to open that scroll? I cried bitterly because no one could be found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside of it as God holds the scroll. Okay, what does this mean? Well, we read on. Then one of the elders said to me, don't cry. Look, the lion from Judah's tribe, the great descendant of David has won the victory and he and break the seven seals and open the scroll. Then I saw a lamb standing in the center of the throne, surrounded by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb appeared to have been killed. It had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God that had been sent through the whole earth. Same kind of imagery here. The lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. And as he did so, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each had a harp and gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And I think what this is describing is when was God's character vindicated? When God became a human being, when he lived the humble life of a carpenter, laid down his life on a cross. And I think what is happening here is not the father handing off the scroll to the son, but rather our picture of God. As we see what God did 2000 years ago, is all of a sudden, my goodness, now that is a God who's worthy of our trust, a God who would do that. So I think what we're seeing is a transformation in our picture of God, okay? Vindication of God's character. Remember this war began in heaven. And um, so I think uh, what happens now is the angels just, God, you are fully vindicated. They sang a new song. Notice it's a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll, to break open its seals for you were killed And by your sacrificial death, you bought for God people from every tribe, language, nation, and race. You have made them a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they shall rule on earth. Again I looked, and I heard angels, thousands and millions of them. They stood around the throne, the four living creatures and the elders, and sang in a loud voice, the lamb who was killed is worthy to receive power, wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and praise. And it kind of reminds me when that baby was born. Remember the angels came to the shepherds and they sang glory to God in the highest, meaning to the highest degree that God can be praised. Look at what he's done to come as a baby. And here again, uh, the angels, onlooking universe, perhaps us in this scene as well, are uh, just astounded at what God did. And I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, in the world below, in the sea, all living beings in the universe, And they were singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise, honor, glory, might forever and ever. And they all fell down and worshiped. Okay, this is a a new picture of God and um, I think it's quite incredible in the context of Revelation 12, which is war broke out in heaven. Okay, things were not, um, this is where the problem began. War broke out in heaven. Remember the word here, polemos, from which we get political. This was a political contest, a war of ideas, words. And as we tried to describe, really a slander, slanderous charges about the character of God is how this problem all began. Where Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, fought back with his angels, but the dragon was defeated and he and his angels were not allowed to stay in heaven any longer. And where do you fight a political battle? It's in the mind. Where do we throw Satan out of, of our mind? Satan was thrown out of heaven, cast out in the minds of the angels who no longer believe anything he has to say, but obviously he's not been cast out on this earth. The huge dragon was thrown out, that ancient serpent named the devil or Satan that deceived the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and all his angels with him. Okay, and here is where we have the problem. There's no problem in heaven anymore. They're they're fully settled into who God is. Problem is down here. Okay, so um, when we went over Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, we talked about all the emphasis in this great controversy, just in those three books. Just to read one verse. Through the sun, then, God decided to bring the whole universe back to himself. That's more than just planet Earth. God made peace through his son's blood on the cross. There was war in heaven. God made peace by what he did on planet Earth. He made peace on the cross and brought back to himself all things, notice not just on earth, both on earth and in heaven. And the book of Revelation is an invitation to take in a bigger picture of things, of a universe-wide great controversy. Okay, so just if we uh, just contrast here, just to pick on this great controversy theme a little bit more, what is Satan doing? And we, I had to delete half of these slides, but I'll just pick one representative verse here about this beast that was allowed to make proud claims, which were insulting to God. And it was permitted to have authority for 42 months. And it began to curse God, his name, his character, his reputation, the place where he lives, and all those who live in heaven. It was allowed to fight against God's people and to defeat them. And it was given authority over every tribe, nation, language, and race. Um, better be careful if you say God is in control. Um, I agree, in a bigger sense, God is in control. But when we read about children being raped and starving to death, I mean, look who's in control. This beast was given authority over every tribe, nation, language, race. What did Jesus say? He came to defeat Satan, the prince of this world. Okay, We are to pray, remember the Lord's Prayer, which is, May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is being done in heaven. We are to pray that it be done on earth. It is not most of the time. And that's because there is an enemy. And um, so I think this uh, imagery here again points to that. Just the contrast between God and Satan in the book of Revelation are so dramatic. God is pictured as a lamb that was slain, pierced, appeared to have been killed. The lamb will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of life-giving water. God is described as a rider on a white horse. God is described as standing at the door and knocking. How do you like that? He doesn't force his way in. God's methods are not force and coercion. He stands and knocks. Okay, we contrast this with the other side. And notice the methods of the enemy. It it used the vast authority of the first beast in its presence. It forced the earth and all who live on it to worship the first beast whose wound had been healed Force, coercion, these are not God's methods. The beast told them to build an image in honor of the beast that had been wounded by the sword and yet lived. And again, I wish we had time to talk about all of these, but the the big point is the methods of God, the methods of Satan, night and day difference. We see force and coercion in the other kingdom. Okay, God stands at the door and knocks. And just the description here. I mean, uh, we... I heard a sermon on this. Uh, I shouldn't go into too much detail, but here's a description that is violent. Hide us from the eyes of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. And I hope you've been here when we've talked about God's wrath all the way through the Bible. Is it significant that it's described as the wrath of the lamb? Um, I heard a sermon not too long ago where someone said, when Jesus comes back, he won't be nice anymore. And, you know, is Jesus gonna be entirely different in character? Well, we had that brief revelation for three and a half years, but we're gonna get an entirely different revelation here in the future. The wrath of the lamb. How does a ram have, or of a lamb, how does a lamb have wrath? Have you? What concepts do we build around that? Uh, those of you who've been in the neuroscience course, remember we talked about planned redundancy, that the important concepts are again and again and again, I hope, emphasized by the end of the course. Well, God's wrath, I would see in that same light. I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens of times, the wrath is explained, planned redundancy. Romans 1, God's wrath is to give them up, give them up, give them up. It seems like planned redundancy to me. At least that's the way that I read it. There's wrath on the other side. The huge dragon that was thrown out, Satan. Here's his wrath. And so be glad, you heavens. He's been cast out of heaven and all you that live there. But how terrible for the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, and he is filled with rage or wrath in some versions because he knows that he has only a little time left. Is Satan's wrath different than God's wrath? I think it is. And we have these two groups. And I'm going to end on this uh, point here because... Um, I think there's maybe just one point here that I'll emphasize in the book of Revelation. Described again and again, two groups, wheat and tares, sheep and goats, those who have the seal, those who have the mark of the beast, some that are on the right hand of God, some that are on the left, the bride, the prostitute, the saved, the lost. So many ways that are used to describe these two groups. But what is used most often here in the book of Revelation is those that have the seal of God and those that have the mark of the beast. What is that referring to? In Revelation seven, and there are lots of um, allusions to this. I'll just mention one where the angel is described as saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we mark the servants of our God with a seal in their foreheads. Now, what would that mean to be marked with a seal in your forehead? The seal so many times in the Bible is described as being given by the Holy Spirit. I'll mention just two verses, but it is the Spirit who gives the seal of God. Two passages in Ephesians. And you also became God's people when you heard the true message, the good news that brought you salvation, healing, like a salve. You believed in Christ, and God put his stamp of ownership on you, his seal, literally, by giving you the Holy Spirit he had promised. We associate the sealing with the work of the Holy Spirit. And then later in Ephesians 4, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So I think a natural question here is we take the Bible as a whole and we think about this sealing. What is it about these people in Revelation? What is sealed in their forehead? And the work of the Holy Spirit, again, Jesus, just the, his speech, his talk with his disciples the night before he died, was so redundant on this. The helper will come, the spirit, who reveals the truth about God. What truth about God? Wouldn't it be the truth that Jesus came to reveal? I came to reveal your name, your character. When the spirit comes, who reveals the truth about God? He will lead you into all the truth. What truth? Truth about God. I will ask the father. He will give you another helper who will stay with you forever. He is the spirit who reveals the truth about God. So again, the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit is trying to settle into our minds is the truth about God. Not just that we know facts and we all walk out of here and saying, yep, God is just like Jesus. Okay, that's a fact of knowledge. Okay, but we're not saved by knowledge. We're saved by that becoming a part of us, internalized. Okay, we assimilate that. It becomes a part of our reality, this picture of who God is. Okay, that is, as I understand, that is the seal. And here's something, again, from our church history I totally agree with. It is not a seal or mark that can be seen, but a settling into the truth, truth about who God is, both intellectually and spiritually, so they cannot be moved. In other words, we're so settled on this one thing. I think this is doctrine number one, which is God is just like Jesus in character. Okay, that's the most important truth to be settled in, every other doctrine should revolve on that one core belief. And so the end of the book describes, they'll see his face and his name, his character will be written on their foreheads. Remember to behold God, we are changed. By beholding, we become changed. The the clearer our picture is of God, the closer we come to the reality and the closer we enter into a true relationship with a true picture of God, we are changed in that process. It's unavoidable. And these people are described as having God's character written on their foreheads. They've been transformed. Here's a description of the people who are sealed. They won the victory over him because of the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And here's what they're like. They didn't love their life so much that they refused to give it up. Okay, that is the ultimate agape love. That is the love of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, which is other-centered, loving others more than self, willing to lay down your life for others. Remember Jesus said, there is no other greater love than to lay down your life for a friend. Okay, that is ultimate love. And these people do not love their life so much that they refused to give it up, not selfishly holding on, laying down their life. It's the counter-opposite of Satan's kingdom, which is... At its core, survival of the fittest. Satan's kingdom is, I am willing to kill you in order that I may climb a little higher. God's kingdom is, I'm willing to lay down my life for others. And it's an incredible description of these people who are sealed. So I think that the revelation, ultimately, that will be seen on this planet, planet, as I understand what it means to have the good news go throughout the world, it will not just be nice sermons that are preached, but it will be the life of Jesus Christ ultimately seen on dying on a cross, that that kind of a love will be manifest through his people. And so we contrast. If that's the seal of God, what is the mark of the beast? Wouldn't it be exactly the opposite to be so settled into the lie about who God is that you cannot be moved? And we have lots of examples of this in human history. God came to his own people who were going to church, keeping the Sabbath, paying tithe, reading their Bibles, on and on and on, the whole list. And they saw the real God and they said, he does his miracles by Satan. Okay, to look at the true God and see Satan, uh, that is the mark of the beast. And these people, what's just so remarkable, I find, that doing the external list, but yet their picture of God was completely contrary to the reality. This, as I understand it, is the mark of the beast. And I think as truth is poured out on the earth, there will be a settling, either accepting or rejecting. People will go into different camps. Some will have the seal of God, others will have the mark of the beast and people will become settled into those positions. Lots of examples. What about those who crucified people here, or not crucified, but who strangled and burned to death someone like uh, Tyndale. Now these people would say, we believe in Jesus. We're covered by the blood. We're saved by the blood of Jesus. We believe in Jesus. Now let's get Tyndale up there and burn him to death. Now their picture of God again, night and day different from the reality. So it's not just saying we're saved by Jesus. We believe in Jesus. It is having the right picture. It's having a Christ-like picture of who God is. If it's completely contrary to Jesus Christ, uh, that is the mark of the beast. So here's something in this context. I'm not saying this is the Mark of the Beast. Okay, but this is a headline that maybe some of you saw. This shocked me on CNN just a few days ago. This caught my attention. Here was the headline Churchgoers More Likely to Support Torture. Okay, this was a survey done that uh, I just find astonishing. About 800 people were surveyed, and 54% of people who attend services at least once a week said the use of torture against suspected terrorists is often or sometimes justified, okay? And compared to 42% of people who seldom or never go to services agreed. Now, from my perspective, uh, I think torture for any justification is about as contrary to what Jesus revealed about the kingdom of God as you can possibly get. And if we have people, Christians, who go to church regularly, who are more settled into, yes, torture could be a good thing, uh, I that seems in the wrong direction to me. That seems headed more towards the mark of the beast than to the seal of God. Uh, these words of Jesus, maybe just a last quote here, um, this is what the kingdom looks like. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And yes, God gave that rule. But now I tell you, do not take revenge on someone who wrongs you, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, let him slap your left cheek too. If someone takes you to court to sue you for your shirt, let him have your coat as well. If one of the occupation troops forces you to carry his pack one mile, carry it two miles. Who are the occupation troops? The Romans. Who are the Romans? They're national enemies. Can you see why Jesus was hated? When someone asks you for something, give it to him. When someone wants to borrow something, lend it to him. You've heard that it was said, love your friends, hate your enemies, but now I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I think this is what a Christian looks like, okay? It's radically different than kingdom of the world. Kingdoms of the world do what kingdoms of the world do. They fight wars, they have taxes, they do all these kinds of things, and some of those things are necessary, okay? But we belong to another kingdom, and this is what our kingdom looks like, loving enemies doing good to those who persecute us, praying for them. That is the agape love. So I think however we describe it, however we imagine the good news going throughout the world, I see it always looking like Jesus. When the kingdom is established on earth, it will look like Jesus dying on Calvary. When the seal of God is present in the forehead of people, so settled into the truth, it will look more like this, serving, giving, loving others more than self. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would be with each of us who are here just now and those listening. We pray that uh, we would come to a greater understanding of who you are, that this picture of a God who would lay down his life for others may become a part of us, may become internalized, that we may perhaps just in small ways begin to live out that kind of love to others. In your name we pray, amen.